Welcome to the podcast of ideas. The following recording is from the Academy of Ideas book club on Thursday the 16th of April, which read Animal Farm. The introduction is by Neil Davenport, cultural critic, teacher and Battle of Ideas speaker. In the chair is Academy of Ideas' Jeff Kidder. Okay, so this evening we're discussing Animal Farm. Uh, Neil Davenport is head of faculty of social sciences at JFS Sixth Form Centre in London. As a noted cultural critic, regular speaker at the Battle of Ideas Festival, which many of you will have been to, and has a particular interest in, uh, in, in George Orwell. So Neil will be discussed, will introduce this, uh, then we'll open it up for discussion and, and debate by people raising their hands. And I will now unmute Neil. He can give us the wisdom of his thoughts. Neil, welcome. Good evening, everyone. Obviously, um, Animal Farm was first published in August 1945 uh, and is probably George Orwell's second most famous published work after uh, 1984. Also famously, of course, is uh, Animal Farm is an allegorical novella because it tells the story of a group of farm animals uh, who rebel against their a human farmer hoping to create a society where the animals can be equal, free uh, and prosperous. Ultimately, however, the, re- the rebellion is betrayed um, and the farm ends up in a state as bad as it was before. Under the dictatorship of a pig named Napoleon, and obviously there's no big secret who the aim is here, but Orwell himself, the fable, reflects events leading up to the Russian Revolution of 1917 uh, and then onto the Stalinist era of the Soviet Union in the 1920s and the 1930s. Now, although both Animal Farm and 1984 are reflections on Stalinism and totalitarianism, I think both books have been used as warnings on the nature of power itself. And I think for this reason, they, they don't date uh, as a period base of documenting the destructive impact uh, of Stalinism. I think they raise questions on the nature of power, how to gain consent, and perhaps the problems of legal constitutionalism as well. And I think although 1984 has often been used outside of the context uh, of looking at Stalinism, I think this is perhaps less so with Animal Farm. And I think this is what I want to take a look at this evening, because when I was approaching this book, I was a little uncertain as to how useful it would be looking at the original intentions of Animal Farm um, by looking at Stalinism. And I think what I want to focus on is perhaps the insights it can bring to looking at politics in the 21st century. Now, just just as a sort of slight light-hearted comment to that, I think some journalists have nicknamed um, the Guardian columnist Owen Jones as as a squealer um, after the mediating pig in Animal Farm, uh, who explains to the party faithful the latest twist, turn, and revision of the party's policies. I think clearly um, there is some some scope for representing animal farm in a, in a fresh context. I think then, as of now, animal farm criticizes the claims that social inequalities 
are a product of natural inequalities. That comes through quite clearly in terms of how the division of labour on the farm is organised. It speaks to us of how the work that the animals uh, undertake is similar uh, to humans working under, cap in, uh, under capitalism. Now, in terms of mapping out a future society for the animals, Orwell is caricaturing, I think, some of the hair-shirt tendencies of left-wing radicals and their opposition to consumerism or, or luxury goods. The products of an advanced society in animal farm um, are often cast as, as evil rather than a positive development for all. And I think the caricature of the Bolshevik party uh, are well known here as well. And I think Orwell rates the, the development of political theory uh, and organization amongst the animals uh, on Manor Farm with Napoleon and uh, Snowball taking the vanguard leadership role. And I think equally, the decades of farmer, Mr. Jones is an analogous to a corrupt uh, and decadent bourgeoisie in Russia, but also perhaps prior to the French uh, Revolution as well. Immediately after the revolution uh, on Manifold, um, the Bigs established seven commandments, or what could be read as a written constitution, uh, and therefore possessing uh, legal power. And I think throughout the novella, the constitution is constantly amended or reinterpreted to suit the power objectives of Napoleon and Snowball. I think here, Orwell speaks to the limitations of constitutionalism that applies, I think, outside of the satire of the Soviet Union and Stalinism. And in fact, I think this more accurately reflects how the American constitution has chopped and changed to meet the requirements of the US establishment at any given time uh, from legalizing, uh, from legally justifying slavery to legalizing gay marriage on a federal level the Constitution has constantly chopped and changed in America. So I think what Orwell is arguing here in Animal Farm is that only the powerful have the capacity to amend written constitutions. And I think this is done in a way to, have to enhance the power of a political class rather than automatically protecting natural rights. And I think in this way, Animal Farm speaks to us on the dangers of constitutionalism and when legal principles are actually used to undermine uh, politics. Also in Animal Farm, Orwell makes a right play of how expertise and intelligence becomes synonymous with leadership and a born to all attitude rather than something that is an outcome of an elected mandate. I think Animal Farm speaks to us on how technical expertise is used as a mechanism to justify leadership uh, without accountability. And this is a constant feature of the workings on Animal Farm. And I think, interestingly, Orwell writes that it was natural that the pigs should assume, assume the leadership of Animal Farm. And I think for all the shifts from the hereditary principle in Western societies and the move from a monarchical society to a democratic society, I think he, uh, Orwell is hinting that technocratic qualities make leadership a natural outcome, but not one from uh, an elected mandate. In the early period of Animal Farm, we learned that the animals hold weekly planning meetings for the seven days ahead. 
uh, although it's only the pigs who put forward the actual resolutions. There's also a period of self-improvement of the animals. And uh, nevertheless, we also watch how the animals descend into groupthink, uh, summed up in the phrase, four legs are good, two legs bad, uh, a conforming slogan that has the effect of undermining new ideas and new opinions. And I think it's, it's no coincidence that the pigs start to set aside from the other animals on the farm uh, through a language of paternalism and risk assessment of other, uh, of other animals. And it's a language, I think, that is all too familiar in the 21st century. Now, the animal farm revolution, I think, effectively ends its early promise when Napoleon announces, once Snowball has been banished, that the weekly meetings would come to an end. What was replacing the weekly meetings was decision-making regarding the farm uh, would be done privately amongst an unelected pig leadership. And I think this is, this is quite an important turning point in the November and how it's applicable to more recent development in politics because many on the left in more recent years utter the words democracy with almost sneering inverted commas, uh, a concept from a bygone age that has become um, a bit of a joke. As Orwell outlines here, the revolution is betrayed once democratic decision-making is removed from the masses uh, and when leadership is not accountable to the mass of society. And I think what Orwell is trying to make clear in Animal Farm is that any claims for a progressive and radical society is effectively over once democracy is removed uh, from social organisation. Later on, as Napoleon consolidates his rule, he actually becomes more interested in discussing trade and politics with the human leaders of the nearby farms, completely cutting out the populace on uh, animal farm and allowing rulers from other farms to have a say over what impacts on them. The descriptions of the pigs enjoying being at the table with other human farmers sort of demonstrates how they get their validation from other members of the farmers' um, elite set rather than the animals in their own uh, jurisdiction. Now, oppositely, when this was written, this was perhaps allegorical to the Soviet Union's leadership and to Soviet Union's negotiations with the West. But I think the novella here also applies to political processes that end up preferring the company of other elites than the mass of citizens at home. Now, as part of the discussion, though, it'd be interesting to think what people think about the depiction of the dumb animals um, blindly following the, the pig's orders, incapable of making decisions for themselves uh, or not having the ability to question authority. We, we're kind of used to that awful hybrid word sheeple, which is popular in, in, amongst uh, millennials, is, is all well casting similar aspersions to the lower orders in Animal Farm, is he revealing his own upper-class prejudices against the uneducated, long, incapable of challenging the way that society is organised, or is he spelling out the dangers of bureaucracy and groupthink when it comes to political um, processes? Overall, then, I think the importance of Animal Farm is that it highlights the importance of democracy and accountability and the perils when uh, radicals jettison uh, democratic processes. And I think that applies uh, to a highly fraught revolutionary context in Russia 
but obviously I think it still speaks, it still speaks to us uh, in the current context of 21st century Europe. And I think that's the key thing I'd like to take away from Animal Farm, uh, how central uh, democracy accountability is for the process of creating a progressive society. Thank you very much, Neil. And the hands are going up already, firstly. I'll just get people to ask questions, make points, and then I'll bring Neil back to comment and we'll, we'll, we'll do it like that. For first hand is Simon McEwen. Thank you, Neil. That was, that was, really, that was really great. Um, the point I'd like to make is, is, is uh, how central it is uh, today. And I think the two, two things that you remark upon reflect both on the Brexit debate and on what's currently going on with the COVID. And I think that is the uh, law, shaped, uh, law is shaped by politics, that this somehow it dispels the myth that law is in independent. And, you know, this re reinterpretation of the Constitution, which I thought was an interesting point that you made. And the second point was the technical expertise. And we saw that with Brexit. And again, we're seeing that with um, the current uh, debate around COVID, where we're supposed to you know, follow the science and somehow these politicians are making their decisions independent of, of, of politics and it's about following the science. Okay, thank you. Um, and next is Sabina from Berlin. Yeah, I thought that was a brilliant introduction. Thanks a lot, um, Neil. I, I found your um, constitution point absolutely spot on. And I think we've got a lot to struggle with that here in Germany because we've got a written constitution which is constantly being changed. So we've even got animal rights included in our constitution. Um, just two quick questions. One is, the point he makes is, as far as I remember, that the animals, some of the animals can't even read, so they need somebody else to read them, the Constitution. So I was wondering if that plays a role, so maybe playing into education. And the third point is, um, there, is a, there is this time when, when he kind of has an armed, you know, Napoleon has his own army. He, he trains dogs in secret and um, the, the dogs then chase Snowball away. So um, it's not quite as simple as, um, I mean, it's not, not only, only the animals being sheep and, and workhorses uh, as Boxer is, for example, but there is also this sheer force um, through, you know, through, through the dogs. So I was wondering, um, you know, what you'd say about that and, and, and what that would mean for us today. So police, um, armed forces, the um, emergency laws we have at the moment, etc., etc. Um, Simon Belt. Uh, really insightful, uh, Neil. Thought that was really good. And this is probably a bit of an aside, but I do think it's quite a, a good point that uh, Orwell flags up. You made a point about groupthink that four legs good, two two legs bad, and everything like that, and that the pigs approach everyone else as though they're sheeple or uh, sheep-like people. There's a point that Orwell makes really early on in Animal Farm, and that's about taking the kids away, or kids, uh, taking the, the babies of the animals to one side and educating them separately uh, so that the tuition that they get is very ordered um, and it does kind of smack of what the BBC have done with putting the Orwell statue outside their headquarters is that they kind of do see themselves as that patron of society where they educate everyone else. It is a bit of an aside of Animal Farm but it would be good to 
come back on that. Okay, so I'll, I'll ask Josephine to make her point and then I'll get Neil to come back on those things. And the, can you just relate what's happening in the news to what's happening in Animal Farm? So, you know, how, what's the mediation there? And then I'll come out again to, to another lot of, another group. So, Josephine. I was just interested in um, the thing you, you said about the constitution because one of the reasons why the constitution is able to change is that most of the animals can't read it. So they say, I thought it said this. Um, and then he says, oh, no, no, it doesn't say that. So the question of education, which has been um, raised, I think is really, really important um, and um, quite modern, really. Um, who has control of education and um, how is it planned? Because obviously it's the pigs who are doing the educating. And I also thought the question um, that you raised about why do they all just go along with it is interesting because I think it's quite layered in the sense that... Um, uh, like Simon's just mentioned, it's almost a cultural revolution with the babies in that he educates them and turns them into um, snarling dogs. And then you've got the cynic who I wondered whether is a bit of a um, George Orwell narrator in a way. Um, and then you've got the worker, boxer, who will just keeps working. And um, so you, you do have a layers of people who are kind of questioning and saying, oh, no, no, don't question, keep going. So there, there is a bit more depth to them rather than that they're more they're just sheep like if if you know what i mean mm -hmm. okay okay well just yeah. uh, just josephine's point so a sort of recent, really useful point that they actually do sort of think about it they mull over some of the key changes that you know that have been proposed by the pigs and one interpretation that i, that I was coming up with and i almost put this in the introduction is that it's almost like Gramsci is that because working class people have to constantly struggle in order to make ends meet and you know meet their sort of material needs it actually acts as a prevention for radical politics or it becomes a prevention for social change and i think that is actually buried within animal farmers as well because the the animals have to work out of necessity there's a clash between that necessity and social change and i think that that's what for me orwell is also hinting at it's definitely the case that the question of um, different levels of education um, is, is mobbed there, particularly on the reading of the Constitution. And I think that speaks to us about old liberal ideas of um, uh, knowledge democracy, which, you know, John Stuart Mill would also flag up as being important. The idea that democracy is, is really owned by people who are educated. Uh, I think in passages of, uh, of Animal Farm, what Orwell is hinting at is even though the animals cannot read, they have still have a lived in um, experience of a situation that they're going through and therefore they will discuss it. And I think that's a useful counterpoint to this idea that politics only belongs to um, people who've read certain texts because it's actually going on is that the animals thinking about the lived in experience and the practical experiences that are sort of going through. So I think that's where it uh, uh, counterbalances on that. I think Sabina's point on, on, on um, the state and the armed uh, wing of Napoleon, I was trying to sort of work that in because I, rather, rather sort of in a contrived way, I wanted to uh, take a look at it in a contemporary context. And obviously the police don't operate as a political force in the way that it used to um, but obviously that would be the case if, if, if there was a political threat at some point. We could make, you know, crass analogies with the current lockdown. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, is that it wasn't just the, the socialisation 
uh, and the political indoctrination that was um, holding Animal Farm together, um, the use of the terrifying dogs and the use of state power in its classical um, armed body of men formulation is definitely the underpinning of the order um, in Animal Farm as well. I think Jeff asked the question, can you make an analogy with what's happening contemporary? I, I, I didn't want to make it sort of um, line for lot in analogous with what's happening recently. I think it's more of the, the brilliance of George Orwell is that he thinks very deeply about political processes. And I think he thinks very deeply uh, about the, the nature of power, how it relates to the mass of people and his firm belief in democracy in relation to that. And I think that's, that's what we can, take, we can take out of it. Thanks, Neil. Okay, Sheila. Just a couple of points. Um, I'm going to assume that we all read this book when we were 15. I feel really strongly about it. I, I'm thinking that once we've got past the clever satire, and I think the fairy tale itself and its characters and working out who is who in history, I think that's really clever and it's great. Um, but I think that's less interesting than the way in which the book has been reread and maybe rewritten since 1945. So what I find interesting, having read it so many times, is each preface, you know, so 20 years, when it was the 50-year anniversary, it was Malcolm Bradbury, I don't know if you've read the preface, and he was reflecting on Tiananmen Square at that time. So at every point in history at which the book is reread, it's applied. So tonight we're trying to apply it to Corona, you know, and um, I, I haven't got an answer to that specifically, but for me, the appendix that was added, not the preface, but the appendix that was added, uh, which was Orwell's piece on freedom of speech, which was discovered later on in 1971. I find that the most interesting. I mean, I think we have to remember, like with all of these things, the time at which it was actually written. So at this time when he wrote this and could not get it published for a couple of years, um, we were coming to the end of a second world war and Stalin was held in high esteem. Stalin was held in high esteem by the left and by the British state at that time because of the alliance with uh, basically winning the war, you know, and it's, um, I, I just think it's important to remember these things. And in the, the appendix that was added in 71, which was overtly about freedom of thought and freedom of speech, you know, Orwell said that, um, Freedom of thought and speech can be claimed as a transcendental, transcendent and deep-rooted Western heritage. So at this point in 1945, he was saying this is Western heritage and his desire to express his opposition, his overt opposition to Stalin at that time was, was against all the feelings and nobody would publish it. You know, for two years he couldn't get a publisher. So I'm really... I'm kind of more interested in those elements of history than in who was Snowball and who was Napoleon in the Animal Farm story. But that's only because I've read it so many times. I mean, I do think that the story and the fairy tale is, is beautiful and is, is really interesting. But I, there's only so many times I can say, you know, Napoleon was Stalin, you know? Um, so it's kind of 75 years later, what should what the hell should we do with it? Thanks very much. Um, next is Mo. Thanks very much, Neil. That was really really thought provoking. 
So I was just uh, sort of following on a little bit from what Sheila was saying, because um, you can almost imagine a classroom full of, you know, O-level, A-level students uh, today interpreting this in a completely kind of ahistorical way uh, as a kind of anti-human thing. Uh, and there's a bit where uh, Orwell writes, I think it's major actually when he's given his opening speech, he says, cows, how many thousand gallons of milk have you given during this last year? And shouldn't that milk have been used to breed your sturdy calves? I mean, I've got a kind of slightly nutty cousin who really hates humans and really loves animals who says things like that. She's always posting things like that on Facebook. You, you know, that um, man is the only creature that consumes without producing. That, that's kind of sort of almost, you know, straight from Orwell, the way, the way she kind of uh, talks about that. But I just also wanted to just talk uh, on that point about taking the pups away because what he writes is there's no point wasting education on the old. We should concentrate on the young instead. Now, pre-Brexit, when I was living in my kind of arts and education middle-class world, that was a really, really common thing is, you know, arts and education in the civic duty of the arts, the kind of instrumental role in the arts was almost like, what is the point of um, even bothering with these kind of old people that are racist bigots, all that? We've, we've lost the argument with them, far better to kind of concentrate on the young. Um, so I know that those kind of conversations were, were, were kind of going on, but it also kind of brings to mind the kind of slightly right wing um, problem that you hear, hear people talking about that all the universities, all the teachers, they're all left wing, they're all kind of, you know, kind of brainwashing the youth into their way of thinking instead of kind of giving a round and balanced education. So, so you know, I th sort of think that right wing conspiratorial way of thinking about education is a bit much but then on the other hand I have heard that but it's that whole thing about what's the point we, you know the old people there's nothing we can do with them anymore we need to kind of re-educate the young from our way of thinking so just wondered what you thought of that really. Michael. Uh, I wanted to talk about Orwell as an activist because um, people forget that when Orwell wrote books for, for a while he you know he went to Wigan to write the road to Wigan Pier he went to Spain I think, to write a book and decided to pick up a rifle. He got out of Spain. He could have easily ended up in a jail in Catalonia or Madrid at the behest of the Communist Party. He got out in some respects with the skin of his teeth. There was a war within a war in Spain. And I think Animal Farm is a book about the Russian Revolution. It's a book about Stalinism and it's a book about Two, two elements of that. One is the hypocrisy. And the word revolution, it, it, we think of it as a wonderful term, you know, it became that. But actually, in its origins, when you go back to the English Civil War, it just meant no change. It meant you go full circle. And Animal Farm is about going full circle. And it's about hypocrisy. And propaganda, when we talk about the propaganda in um, Animal Farm, it's an important thing for Orwell because a lot of lives were lost in Spain, in, in Catalonia, in the war within the war. Because what happened, he, was, he didn't fight for the International Brigade, I don't know if people know, but he fought with the, um, they weren't really Trotskyists, but they were called that. By, by the International Brigade and the Communist Party, but the POOM, the Socialist Party militia, and they were aligned with actually quite much, much bigger anarchist militias in, um, in Catalonia. 
and they were a problem for the Republic. So much so that the word was put about, stuff was printed, that they were in fact a fifth column inside the fascist organisation. And thousands of them were languishing in uh, Republican prisons and hundreds and hundreds were executed. And one of those could have been Orwell. Okay, so for him, propaganda is not academic thing. It was a matter of life and death for people that he knew and fought with. And what happens when he comes back to the UK, he finds that Browsford and other sections of the left, and let's remember that Orwell's a member of the Independent Labour Party, which is not the Communist Party and it's not the Labour Party. And they probably are, I don't know, they would have been the SWP or whatever of, of their day. He comes back to the UK and he finds that actually the left inside the Communist Party and in the Labour Party are buying the line that the Poom and the anarchist militias were in fact Nazis. Yeah. So when he when we he writes about, as, as Neil was saying, you know, are people following the line, are people sheep? Yeah, some a lot of people, and he was never he was amazed at what people would be prepared to believe that people who had fought against Franco forces were then called Nazis and Trotskyists and fascists and were put in jail and executed and tortured. And so if you've been through that kind of experience, you would think, well, hang on a minute, there's more to propaganda than just, you know, telling a story in a newspaper. It's about life and death. And he, you know, and as Sheila was saying, he was appalled uh, throughout the Second World War and amused as well, because he's always amused at how um, a red haze, as Angus Calder says, comes over Britain and people are naming their children Joe after Stalin. And isn't the Communist Party, you know, because of Stalin great, isn't, isn't the Communist Party wonderful? And the Communist Party in Britain trebles its membership to 60,000. They get, what, three or four MPs. They're running the TUC. He doesn't think this is a good thing. He doesn't think this is a good thing. The next step after Animal Farm is 1984. I'll take... Oh, Hi. Hi. Thanks, Neil. I very much enjoyed that. I do think um, Orwell perhaps is indebted to, to some extent to Trotsky in, in much of his writings, because not only was Trotsky obviously quite politically astute, but he was a wonderful writer. Anybody who's read his work like my life, how literary he actually was. And it's in one particular book that um, was published in the 1920s, Dictatorship versus Democracy, where I think Orwell might have picked up on something that Trotsky wrote quite beautifully, I thought. So I thought rather than sort of try and synopsize it, you know, uh, I'd, I'd read a little section of what Trotsky wrote and you might, you might see the, 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 the significance of it. Uh, he talks about the emergence of democracy from natural law and all men are equal before the law, independently of their origin, their property, and their position. Every man has an equal right to determining the fate of the people. This ideal criterion revolutionized the consciousness of the masses insofar as it was a condemnation of absolutism, aristocratic privilege, and the property qualification. But the longer it went on, the more it sent the consciousness to sleep legalizing poverty, slavery, and degradation. For how could one revolt against slavery when every man has an equal right to determining the fate of the nation? Rothschild has kind the blood and tears of the world into the gold Napoleons of his income, has one vote in the parliamentary elections, 
the ignorant tiller of the soil who cannot sign his name, sleeps all his life without taking his clothes off, and wanders through society like an underground mole, plays his part, however, as a trustee of the nation's sovereignty, and is equal to Rothschild in the courts and the elections. This is the real condition. In the real conditions of life, in the economic process, in social relations, in their way of life, people become more and more unequal. Dazzling luxury has accumulated at one pole, poverty and hopelessness at the other. But in the sphere of the legal edifice of the state, these glaring contradictions disappear and they're penetrated thither only unsubstantial legal shadows. I think to some extent that's what he's getting at when he's kind of, you know, trying to analyze where we're going, not just where Stalinism went, but where democracy, so-called democracy was going. I think it's the problem that to some extent, you know, well, to a large extent that we face today. Okay, so Neil, I'll get you to come back. There are a lot of varied points and con interesting contributions. So do you want to say what you think? Okay, um, just, well, just on Dennis's point, I think one of the key differences between Trotsky uh, and George Orwell is that George Orwell had no illusions in Russian Revolution precisely because he was an activist and where that, you know, Michael outlined, he wasn't, you know, at that point, Trotsky was in isolation from a from sort of international communist movement. And therefore, he still had an attachment to the Russian Revolution and he still had an attachment, if you like, to thinking that aspects of the revolution in the 1930s and the 40s could be salvaged in some way. George Orwell uh, had no illusions at all precisely because of his experience of Stalinism um, uh, during the Spanish Civil War. And I think that's, a, that's an important point to remember. And I think, secondly, for us, it's always been the case that Stalinism was, was, was far more destructive and dangerous than, than fascism was. Obviously, fascism physically destroyed uh, workers' movements in Europe, but it didn't have that long-lasting poisonous impact that we actually still wrestling with uh, today. I think um, somebody mentioned earlier on that we should just focus on Animal Farm and its original intention as a critique of Stalinism, and, and uh, there is definitely a place for that. But I think the way to approach this is that we're, we're actually living in the legacy of Stalinism uh, and the left's betrayal of democracy as, as an ideal to uphold. And I think that's where it has the connections. We, we are still, unfortunately, living in the shadows of Stalinism uh, and its impact on a left-wing thing when it, when it comes to sort of democracy debate uh, and accountability. And I think that's, that's the thread uh, of Animal Farm um, with the present day. And it's, it's something we've always grappled with. You know, the, during the minor strike, it was absolutely appalled that this old continual rejection of democracy and accountability of leadership was rearing its head again. Uh, and I think that's the link between then and now uh, in terms of the legacy of Stalinism uh, and how that approach to democracy and leadership continues and we're still living with that legacy today. Thanks, Neil. Uh, Sheila, again. I think it was Neil at the beginning. Um, I can't quite remember. Forgive me if I've got it wrong. But I think it was Neil that was talking about the, the story within Animal Farm about the uneducated. Um, and the way all the layers of animals and the different classes were described as uh, in different caricatures. And um, 
I've thought about this and I just think I just think that the whole piece was overtly a deliberate um, critique and attack on what Stalinism was at that time. And because it, he was because Stalin at that time was held in high esteem in all sorts of strange quarters, then that was um, that was an unpopular position. So the, the extent to which ordinary people or ordinary animals in the story are described as uneducated. And I think Orwell in this book and in many other books occasionally comes across as quite, um, it's almost like he's studying, like he's an anthropologist studying the working class from the outside and describing how terribly uneducated they are. And, and I think now we look back on some of that literature and we, uh, we, do, we kind of question that. But I, I do think that in this book, it's, it's a direct attack on Stalinism as opposed to a description of the uneducated. So that was just a particular point, Neil, that I think you raised at the beginning that I had some thoughts about. Okay, thank you. Richard? I'm a teacher and I, I have been teaching this up until about two years ago quite, quite regularly. And uh, my, I was speaking to my um, uh, niece and she was at a top public school and she'd read the book and she didn't realise it had anything to do with uh, the Soviet Union. And none of her teachers had even drawn any kind of contextual, uh, um, given them any contextual information. They just said, go and read this book. And I was gobsmacked because uh, I think possibly uh, we overkill it with four weeks of contextual analysis before they get to read the first page. Uh, and she just treated it as a, as a fairy story, as a, a genuine story about corruption. And I, and I think that's important to point out, is that the story holds up, even if you don't know that much about the Soviet Union. And it did create a very, very universal story. You get to the end, when it says 12 voices were shouting in anger, and they were all alike. No question now what happened to the faces of the pigs. The creatures outside look from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to say which was which. And that whole sense that power corrupts um, is just all the way through the book. So the choice, to, the choice of giving the dictator the name Napoleon as well was also an attempt for him to try and broaden out the, 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 the allegory. And so... I think it's brilliant in the way that it links up the characters with the, uh, the, the, the Soviet uh, revolution, Russian revolution. But I think the, the power of the book, as uh, I think Sheila was arguing, what do we do with it now? It, it's going to stay around. It's going to be around for a long time because you can, you can read it about the uh, whole corruptibility and fallibility of, uh, uh, of humanity. I just want to check one other thing in very briefly. Sometimes I raise I'm a bit of an Orwell fan, but when I raise something I've been reading by him on Facebook, there's a few um, associates and friends who shout me down and say, yeah, but he grasped up 38 people in 1949. Uh, and it's, it's now, it was revealed in 96, that he, he, basically, he basically gave a list to the, to the Foreign Office of people he thought that were fellow travellers that should be looked into. And for some people that detracts from their their reading and enjoyment of Orwell, that he was effectively uh, submitting names to the English version of the House of Un-American Activities. And I just, I wonder what you thought about that as a Democrat. Thank you very much, Richard. Jessica, welcome from the US. As I see this 
horrifying cautionary tale, one of the things I, I think is like, well, we, we, we can see this happen over and over again, repeating throughout history. And in some cases that happens quite slowly. Um, you know, the changing of the history, reprogramming through the media, through um, like for in the US, you know, we're taking down statues, um, you know, for the purpose of acknowledgement of our past and stuff. However, um, it also buries the history. And so it kind of does have this effect of reprogramming what actually happened in history. And then, you know, changing our con the US Constitution, we have our Supreme Court who interprets the meaning of our Constitution. And over time, it does change. As in, as, um, as you can see from Animal Farm, when they, they keep amending the their Constitution against the original intent. You know, in other cases, that happens quite quickly. So in the case of Animal Farm, when they, when they, the Napoleon pig brought in all of these, um, they brought in those four pigs and they immediately executed, they made them confess to their sins. That had a very horrifying effect on people and a, and a very stifling effect on their speech. And ultimately, I'm wondering, what do we do in our present day to prevent these kinds of things from happening? Can we get to them quickly enough for us to prevent some of this horror and the re repetition of what's happened? Thank you. Josephine. Okay, thank you. Um, I was really interested in what Richard said because um, I teach year five, six, which is the last two years of primary school. And um, I teach a very middle-class cohort who, whenever I introduce a book, have already read it or been introduced to it by their by their parents. So I decided to do Animal Farm this um, for my autumn term topic. And like Richard said, I treated it as an allegory. I didn't really talk about the Soviet Union because I just thought it's probably not appropriate at their age. But parents did fill in the gaps. Some of them did, some of them didn't. Um, but what I thought was very interesting, and we haven't really talked about this, was um, the discussion of leadership because that we did talk about the leaders and we talked about Snowball and what kind of leader he was. Um, and actually, you know, that he was actually a really big threat to Napoleon because he was the type of leader who wanted to plan with the animals and was much more democratic. Although I appreciate that it can be taught as a fairy story and, you know, you not take very much out of it. You, there, you know, there is a lot to take out of it in terms of leadership and, um, and the discussion on that. But the other thing that I wanted to um, throw out, and it really is just first thoughts about it, and I could be well wrong, um, was this thing about um, today and being on the inside and the outside. Um, because obviously um, there was no respect for the animals on the farm and um, the pigs got their validation from dealing with the farmers, um, which kind of ended up with this celebratory meal where they were all patting each other up on the, uh, on the back at the end. The animals in the farm had no news from anywhere apart from what they were told by the pigs. So they believed all sorts of strange and um, wacky stories. And I just wondered whether as a population, we've got a bit of a problem with that as well, because we had a situation I went into school on Tuesday and we're having some work done to our boiler, which meant we had some scaffolding and a, a parent came running up the drive, accusing us of um, erecting a 5G mask. Um, and saying, you know, if you if you are, you're going to be in serious trouble. And I mean, you know, I know that's a bit of an extreme reaction, but there is an element at which, you know, the, the fact that we're all a bit isolated and where are we getting our news from? 
um, you know, is that creating some kind of element of um, uh, diseducation or conspiratorialism within the population? Thank you. Neil, do you want to...? Okay, well, first, first of all, on Sheila's points and on Richard's points, I like, I like the way that um, um, both Richard and uh, Sheila have formulated this. And I, I tend to agree with both interpretations. It definitely is about Stalinism. It is definitely specific to that situation particularly with, you know, the way that Stalinists would immediately go along with any change in a Mossigo position. Stalinist activists would immediately, unquestionably, you know, toe the latest line from Mossigo, even if it was a, a complete 360 degree turn from previously. That is true. So I do agree with, with, with Sheila on that. It, it is an accurate satire and caricature of the way that Stalinist politics worked. Um, but I, I also like what, what Richard was saying, that it has a universal application. It is a specific uh, event that, that George Orwell is talking about, but he's actually placing it in a universal context in terms of power, corruption, leadership, accountability. And the great thing that runs through that is that democracy is seen as the antidote uh, to a lot of these problems. Uh, on Jessica's point of view, uh, a question on well, what do we do? Because... It's precisely because the problems that Orwell are talking about have universal application. That's why you know, we are still discussing it in that, in that same framework. And obviously, the pressure that we're under, you can argue that there is, there is an increasing pressure of groupthink, cancel culture, uh, woke culture, and all the rest of it, which is, which is creating more of a conformist culture because the traditional rights do not know and haven't known um, how to, to tackle this and deal with this for, for the past 20 or 30 years. So in that sense, we, we do have to be maverick and we do have to hold the line in terms of what we think is the response to issues that are, sort of, that are um, thrown up. On Josephine's question regarding misinformation uh, and conspiracy theories, I think on the one hand, mysticism, suspicion has, you know, has been a, a feature of human societies for a long time, but obviously the shift towards conspiratorial thinking is something specific and new uh, to, to the period that we're actually uh, uh, looking at the, at the moment. And then again, uh, that sort of ties in to the importance uh, of democratic debate and the importance of offering explanations that are, that are convincing, that will challenge some of the retrograde uh, tendencies that we're seeing at the moment. And again, you know, all that comes across in, in Animal Farm. There are conspiracy theories outlined in, in Animal Farm as well. And it's the complete absence of a critical culture in Animal Farm that George Orwell is, is ringing the alarm bells to. And that's, and that's where it's applicable. So I think the whole focus of the introduction is not a sort of crass or cynical you know, compare and contrast between animal farm and 21st century, but it's more of what Richard was saying that it has universal applications because it's, it, it's wrestling uh, uh, with the issues of power and decision-making. Thanks very much, Neil. So a, a number of people, and then I'll ask Neil to, to summarise at the end. We have Sheila. Okay. I just want to come back to the rather mundane context of who published it at the time. So we know that Orwell could not get it published for a good couple of years. And in my readings, the uh, Warburg took it on and published it. And he had, at the time in 1945, he had a Society of Cultural Freedom, which sounds very worthy. 
um, and its objectives were to promote Western culture and defend it against the communist culture of the East. And it was these people who published um, Animal Farm at the time. It was later many years discovered that this organization was directly funded by the CIA. So um, again, without, I mean, I'm not one for conspiracy theories or, or, and all of that. And it seems quite surreal, doesn't it, to be thinking about that. But um, again, it's the context at the time of coming out of the Second World War. There'd been a, an actual real war, physical war, but it was before the Cold War actually started. And there was a moment when this book was published. It almost feels like it couldn't have been published at any other time, but just at that moment between the Second World War and the Cold War. And um, these issues about the uh, resistance to publish from all sorts of quarters that had previously published Orwell, but this time they wouldn't publish him. And then the left, at that time, the left's criticism of, of this and um, the idea that um, those who were against the idea that a better world could be created were those who were supporting Orwell. I think maybe this is the source of where some of this criticism from the left and the, the conflict within the left, because it was so conflicted, was it not? Um, and now, these days, all these decades later, 75 years later, you know, Orwell's quotes and even his, he's got a Twitter account, you know, even his Twitter account, you know, it's like everybody lays claims to his one-liners and to his sound bites to prove their left or their right position. And I really struggle with all of this, but um, I'm quite interested in the mechanics of who published him at the time and who was willing to publish him and who funded him. Thanks, Sheila. Uh, Claire? Really enjoyed the introduction, Neil, and some very good points being made. So I just got a couple of straightforwardly simplistic points to make from the times when I've taught the novel many years ago, but I just thought worth sharing. What I found was that even though I would have taught it and people did know it was about Stalinism, nobody knows what Stalinism is, so it doesn't make any difference because it didn't have any historic understanding. So you could tell them, but that didn't necessarily work. But the kind of spontaneous conclusion that many of the young people I taught, and this is, but this is 20 years ago, was likely to be just cynicism about leadership and power. So it was, it, it was a kind of, you know, there's no point having any revolution because everyone gets corrupt. So, you know, in the end, the revolutionaries turn into uh, power greedy pigs and they imitate the people they've overthrown. Now, if you think about how contemporary that thought is, I mean, that's what people believe. It's, it's sort of used in people's imagination as a warning against social change, that nothing can ever change. Um, so that's one thing to note. I thought that um, Mo made a point earlier about how it can be read by animal rights activists. And indeed, when I did The Moral Maze some years ago on veganism, and it was one of those, I just was on The Moral Maze, I just was making, you know, doing what I was as a panellist, and I got more hate mail from vegans than I've ever had over anything else in the whole universe. And God knows, as I said, there's a Brexit party, every people have had my fair share of hate mail, but the vegans, God almighty. But anyway, they all spent the whole time quoting Animal Farm at me, which was a particularly Philistine moment, but it just shows you there's a kind of literalism that means that an allegory can be almost used as 
as a as an aspiration for animals so these things are important so sheila has emphasized that at different times different prefaces will be used you know will draw attention to tiananmen square or whatever is going on and i just wanted to go back to something jeff said at the beginning which is i think that it is a it might be quite a straightforward fairy tale it's not the greatest work of fiction but it is a great work of fiction as well and it has stood the test of time and like all pieces of literature that work well it can be used to understand any number of different things i mean it doesn't matter whether he wrote it about stalinism in some ways because he wrote a novel that can make you think about any range of things and it is true that although i've read it a million times i read it this time and all i could think about was policing the lockdown and brexit and all these you know that's just the way it goes but it stands on its own merits as well and its ability to mean things to different generations is to its credit and its strength but on the other hand the point that jeff warned us about is also true that you can just be clunky about these things and try and fit every single thought into a novel that you're reading rather than appreciating it as a piece of art which it is i think that this that, that the politically though the transcendent political point is to go back to Neil's point, original point in the first place, is that this is a study regardless of power. And however you decide to interpret that, that's what it's all about. And Orwell really gives us something to think about in relation to power. And he does it in a range of different layered ways because there are propagandists, there's a critique of religion, there's a critique of you know, some sheep, sheep who follow, there's, uh, there's the workhorse, the well-meaning carries on working, he does that represent, all of these things, you know, what it means to be in power, and the sort of, and, and sorry, power and democracy, that whole, uh, who's in control, who's in charge, so uh, sort of, it's a, it's a defense of the fact that Orwell gives us enough to think about that we can read anything into it, but that's what makes it a good a, a, a proper piece of fiction, a, a good piece of art, but also to recognise that I think that Orwell, whatever his politics were, which I'm fascinated about as well, and um, has enough depth to his political thinking to allow us to understand politics, even through what can be taught to the top age group of primary school kids without it frightening them. It's actually got a lot more layers to it than that uh, in his defence. Thank you, Claire. Um, Michael, and then after, if there's any other points, and then I'll ask Neil to, to conclude, but do feel free to make other points. Michael. Uh, she, he sent it to Faber, and T.S. Eliot wrote back to him, you know, but, and with a very sort of kind and somewhat patronising rejection. And like, you know, and it was, it was to do with, um, I think style more than more, more than politics, if I remember rightly. The thing about the allegory, I mean, Orwell, people probably know politics in the English language, and he's a fan of, or a, he believes in simplicity, an Anglo-Saxon plainness in language, which is not synonymous with the shallowness of meaning at all. And Will Self has always sort of got a downer on Orwell because of his plainness. But it's the plainness, you know, my granddaughter who's sort of seven would be, be able to understand this, I'm sure. It's, it's a wonderful achievement, I think, 
in very, very plain English. Um, the point about propaganda and the herd believing um, or, t or swallowing anything, you know, it, I mean, Orwell was, you know, vitriolic and amused about the fact that um, the Communist Party could, after it's already gone about again, Spanish Civil War, then adopt the position that the Second World War was an imperialist war until the Soviet Union were involved and, and how they would swing backwards and forwards. And I was in the Labour Party here until I was called Tory scum for voting to leave the EU and, and wondered why on earth I was paying subs and all the rest of it. And, and the, but I still know people in the Labour Party locally and they are really into the line that Corbyn would have won the 2017 general election had it not been for the Labour right. This is what they, this is sort of gospel in a lot of the Labour left now. We would have won. They stabbed him in the back. It wasn't the Tories that won. We actually won the argument. We would have, we were a couple of thousand votes behind and we would have won it had it not been for, and you know, Jeremy should be prime minister. In fact, he probably is or something like that. They'll believe anything. And um, I think that wasn't the Labour Party. The Labour Party activists weren't like that before Corbyn. And I think it is because a lot of ex-trots and ex, you know, sort of maybe even CP members, etc., went in to the Labour Party in the wake of, of Corbyn. And there is a trait in the left to believe all kinds of things, you know, and, and, and swing with it and, and take out and the line. And when, when I was being canvassed when they were knocking on my door in the last general election, it seemed to be the thing that they had this pat answer on anti-Semitism, which was to bore on about Islamophobia in the Tory party, because I had two or three canvassers keep bringing it up on the doorstep. And so that kind of herd belief that Nigel um, talked about in the introduction, I think is alive and well in the current Labour Party now, in a way that it wasn't even in the 80s. Okay, so I've got Josephine again. Any other final points? Raise your hands in a minute, few, next few minutes, uh, and then I'll get uh, Neil to uh, summarise. Uh, Josephine. I just wanted to quickly ask, um, it, uh, Claire reminded me about the religion aspect and what you thought of that, because I thought that was quite pertinent, really, um, the way that he brought the religion into it. Um, and also, um, I was quite interested in the question of relationships, because he does kind of try to pull together this idea that there were true loyal relationships within the animals that don't exist amongst the pigs. You, that sense of, you know, within the leadership, you, you cannot have a relationship. You have to be paranoid. It could be you next time as it was with Snowball. Um, and, um, but within the, the downtrodden, um, there, there exists real relationships. And um, who's going to admit that they did cry when Boxer died? Okay, thank you. I thought Claire's points were very good um, about, you know, we take from it, um, and being a good piece of art, we take from it or, you know, perhaps, you know, add to it our own preoccupations or find in it resolution to some of the questions we have about contemporary society. You know, he, he, he wrote this in 1945, I think is right, and then um, seven years after he wrote The Road to Wigan Pier, where he he's kind of sociological study of the British working class, whatever, he spent his time out um, living with them and so on. 
and had the experience of that. And it's quite, I mean, I always think about it like, in 1945, very few people were questioning Stalinism. It was a long time later before the kind of realities of, you know, the Soviet Union became apparent. The Soviet Union was basking very much in the glory of having beat the Nazis in the, in the, in the, well, you know, in the, in the Second World War, or, you know, had great kudos for that. So, um, you know, I, I, I tend to see it as more of a, you know, he, he may have had insights into Stalinism and what it was all about, but I tend to see it as more of a, of, of, of a study of, you know, British democracy and um, where, what was the significance underlying it. And Neil, yourself, when you started your introduction, you're making the points about, you know, it raises the questions of constitutionalism, it raises the questions of, you know, um, how can we, you know, establish a democracy? And, uh, and, and that's the key thing that it makes me think about, whether I'm kind of, you know, attributing too much to Orwell in relation to that or not. The key thing that I keep coming back to all the time is how can you construct a democratic society where the participation of the people, and we saw this with Brexit and so forth, the participation of the people is real and not, as Trotsky said, you know, you know, insubstantial kind of smoke and mirrors where, you know, uh, a participatory process plays the role of kind of, you know, hiding the reality of where power is constructed and where power is held. And it makes me come back to that question all the time. How do we actually create a real democracy with a constitution that people actually know that their decision is real and that it has a consequence, uh, you know, and, and, and that it can't be manipulated? I suppose I just, um, having rejected the idea of wanting to talk about the story, um, I did want to reveal some of my favourites. So we talked about the uh, religious element and Moses the raven, who apparently didn't do much work, but occasionally appeared every now and again um, with promises of Sugar Candy Mountain. It's just wonderful kind of fiction and literature. It's, it's fantastic. Um, and then in relation to that question, that, that democratic question, I mean, I suppose... I suppose the response to that can only be to reject everything that's in this book, which is the characterization of everybody. You know, so the idea that everybody are these fixed characters is what we have to reject and we have to actually listen to what people have got to say. And then finally, I have to admit to my favorite character being Molly, um, because um, at the time when the animals take over and they appear to have won everything, everything is put on the bonfire, is it not? Everything is burnt down. We don't need any of it. We're not going to wear clothes. We don't need anything. But Molly is really concerned about the fact that all the ribbons and the straw hat is burned. And she really likes wearing ribbons, actually. So it's kind of, um, I, I suppose it's a kind of romantic thing to just reveal the elements of the story that I quite like, um, having tried to resist that all the way through the discussion. Well, thank you. That's been great. <laughs> Thanks, Sheila. Well, your passion for the book really has come through this evening. It's great to have you, uh, have you here. Uh, okay, so Neil, would you like to give us your summary for the takeaway points, I guess, for the, for the evening? Um, really enjoyable discussion. I thought um, people's different interpretations uh, of Animal Farm were, uh, were excellent, and it, and it sort of filled in um, a lot of the holes in um, my 
introduction. I think, I mean, Claire's point is absolutely right. We have to remember it's a piece of literature and it's a piece of, a piece of art, first and foremost. And I, th- I think just on that, I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really touch on that and I should have done. Orwell has, has there's a lot of levity in Animal Farm. He, he plays around with a lot of uh, anachronisms with, you know, the, the cats being the lazy workers and um, the rats representing almost like a lump and proletariat area of the, of the farm and things like that. And um, so there is a, a lot to enjoy on a, on a literary level uh, of Animal Farm. On uh, Josephine's point of, of religion, it's a really excellent point, but I, um, I like the way that in animal form, the religious beliefs are rooted in uh, material yearning rather than necessarily sort of mysticism. And I think, you know, George Orwell gets that, that completely right as identifying uh, where the root causes of, alien, of human alienation comes from uh, and why it leads to uh, religious views. I think so, somebody mentioned about how animal form is, is often used as an argument against social change and I think I think that's true you know for a long time you have you have that slightly eye-rolling comment of well you know power corrupts and it all leads to uh, things being worse than they originally are and I think elements of um, animal farm do can can be used in in that way but I think our antidote to that and Orwell's antidote to simply saying that power corrupts is actually inviting us to recognise that it's democracy that is the antidote uh, to corruptive power. Because in animal form, what we have to remember uh, is that the pigs were never elected in the first place. I mean, they did have meetings uh, and, and the animal's creativity is certainly part of the early formation of animal form. Uh, but they, they don't have a, a proper say and the leadership is not properly accountable. And I think that's what Orwell... Uh, is, is, is getting out really. It's not necessarily an anti-politics tract, um, even though it can be interpreted as an anti-politics tract. He's actually saying that for politics to be meaningful, uh, it has to be based on leadership uh, with accountability and democracy. Finally, uh, somebody was raising the, raised the question, well, well, who was Orwell? Uh, what did he represent? I and mean, I, think, I think where it's important is that he was an important anti-Stalinist writer, uh, a lone voice uh, at a particularly important time, and he kept, I think, the flame going for a democratic, uh, a proper democratic approach to left-wing politics. And I think historically, uh, he was fundamentally important at that, at that time. And I think that issue um, really comes through with, with Animal Farm uh, quite clearly. I think um, even though Animal Farm um, as I said in the introduction, it's his second most famous novel. It's it's slightly compared to uh, 1984. 1984 is the one that people tend to go back to uh, as uh, as a way of looking for clues on political processes, the nature of power, propaganda, totalitarianism, and all the rest of it. But I think as as we're seeing with tonight's discussion, I think Animal Farm is also deserving uh, of that accolade as well. Thank you very much, Neil. I'm now going to unmute everybody so you can applaud. <laughs> fantastic. Really enjoyed everyone's contribution. Thank you all. Thank you, Neil. Still. <laughs> so, well, thank you all for, for coming. In two weeks' time, on the 30th of April, at the same time, same place, we will be discussing 
um, The Plague by Albert Camus, which is something of a busman's holiday, but it's very much a book of the moment. A lot of people are discussing it, a lot of people are reading it, obviously written in the 1940s uh, as an allegory of an entirely different uh, horrific event that, that happened. But anyway, we'll be discussing that in two weeks' time this evening. And uh, David Bowden uh, will, be in, will be introducing that discussion. Is to say that the Academy of Ideas has taken a number of these forums and other debates which we're, which we're planning in the coming weeks online uh, due to force of circumstance. Um, uh, and we're very glad to be able to, uh, uh, to, to do that. But in and of itself, it, it doesn't uh, pay, the, pay the rent, as it, as it were, even though we can't get into our office. So in that situation, um, when we send out adverts for book clubs and other events we're doing, we'll probably send a, a, a link uh, if anybody's in a position to make a donation, however large or small, to maintain our work. That's always gratefully appreciated. Thanks to Jeff, Neil and everyone who attended that book club. If you'd like to join us reading The Plague by Camus on the 30th of April, do head to the Academy of Ideas website, link below this podcast, and sign up. And if you have some extra cash burning in your pocket, think of sending it our way. The Academy of Ideas is carrying on online through the coronavirus lockdown, and we'd love your help.